corridor. So as we always do, I will start uh, with my part of the introduction and welcoming guests. Then uh, Brother Martin will do his, his part. Then we will have up to one hour, uh, more or less, uh, uh, the lecture delivered by Brother David. And then we will have Q&A session. But as there is a very uh, local or national uh, festival for children in UK right now, <laughs> we'll try to uh, we'll try to keep uh, uh, to maximum of two hours, maybe one hour and 50 minutes. Uh, we'll see the, the dynamics of the Q&A session to give uh, Brother David's children opportunity to enjoy the very, very uh, loud uh, festival today. So Brother David, uh, as soon as uh, uh, we'll be getting to the end, uh, we'll, 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 we'll try to uh, set you free as soon as uh, <laughs> you are done with the lecture and Q&A. So with that, um, I will uh, start the lecture. <clears throat> so Gamar uh, Jovat, that is hello, my native Georgian. Welcome to Legere Aude number five. Uh, the topic of today's discussion is the right of seven degrees that will be delivered by uh, brother, Dr. David Harrison. And uh, I will remind uh, what Legere Aude is. Uh, uh, that is a mutual project of Luis Masonic and Sapere Aude. Uh, and we called it Legere Aude, which in Latin means dare to read. So aiming at spreading the light further around the world and promoting acquisition of gnosis through dedicated reading, Sapere Aude and Luis Masonic under the mutual initiative Legere Aude, that is dare to read, to read have the honor to host brother Dr. David Harrison, who is a UK-based Masonic historian and has written many best-selling books on the history of English Freemasonry. He has contributed articles on the subject to various magazines which deal with the topic of Freemasonry around the world, such as the UK-based Freemasonry Today, MQ Magazine, The Square, the US-based Knight Templar Magazine, Philalethes and the Australian-based New Dawn magazine. Brother Harrison uh, has also appeared on TV and radio discussing his works. Later on, I will share uh, several links to his uh, academic or professional uh, websites that you can enjoy more of the details from his uh, current works or the works that he has accomplished previously. Uh, regarding the topic and the book, um, Brother Martin will have the opportunity to introduce and I will use briefly this uh, opportunity to remind everyone participating today that uh, Legere Aude has a few, very few uh, rules that we have to follow. That is that we don't discuss interjurisdictional issues. We don't discuss politics and religion for political or religious purposes. And um, here on La Guerreaude, we come as like-minded individuals from around the world. Uh, the event is public, so it welcomes members and non-members, uh, males and male and female, every single one who, um, who wants to learn more about the um, great works that has been published um, uh, through Louis Masonics, the authors that we have the honor to host. Uh, everyone's welcome to question and challenge any statements in the book or uh, get to, to know the books that have been recently published as we will have uh, 
the opportunity to learn today. So having those very simple rules in mind, it is my pleasure to give the floor to Brother Martin. Thank you very much, David. So we're all here to learn about the rights of the seven degrees. Here's the book that this uh, lecture is uh, about and indeed launching. So there are many reasons why someone would find this book interesting. The whole tale of uh, Pierre Lambert de Linto and his uh, rights and the exciting time in the Enlightenment in London that it existed, that tale itself is fascinating. And I'm sure there are many people here who are interested in some of the rights that were part of his, his seven degree system. Maybe you're a, a member of Rose Choir, or maybe you've studied the Knights Templar or part of that order. Maybe you want to see some earlier version of the Royal Arch. Or perhaps you're interested in seeing some of the new degrees or degrees which don't seem to be worked or commonly known now. Uh, which are included in the book. Many people will be interested in the book just because of the author, whose enthusiasm is contagious, uh, something that I think you'll find as soon as he starts speaking. You can go into a, a talk that he's giving and think, well, I'm here uh, to hear about this subject. It's not really my thing. But by the end of it, you do find yourself convinced it definitely is your thing and, and it always has been. But I'd like to tell you why I'm excited about this book. This is publisher's privilege here. What is it for me that's really interesting? By reading this, you get to look through a little window into Freemasonry at that time and learn how a practitioner, how a, a master of the art, as it were, viewed the rituals that are still practiced now. You, by looking at his engravings, reading the minute books, uh, looking at the, the rituals in their forms, reading the history, you discover what an 18th century Freemason thinks about Freemasonry. And to me, that's very exciting, especially as it's obvious this is a Freemason who's very philosophical and very dedicated. Now there's lots more to it. Uh, I don't want to give a talk on David's book before he gives a talk on his book. So I'll hand over to him now uh, so he can start to tell you this amazing adventure story from that day. Thank you very much. <clears throat> yeah, I'll um, first introduce you to uh, I don't know if you can see that, that's Pierre, Pierre Lambert de Linton. He's, um, this, there's a story behind this sketch because um, it's based on two um, contemporary engravings that uh, uh, we didn't use in the book. So, that, so there's a big story there. So if we've got time, we'll, we'll, we'll go into that. But um, what, what I want to do is, is give an extract, brief extract from the book, um, from the beginning of the book, really, that discusses the 
uh, the right of seven degrees and um, and what the the right was all about really and um, and then then we can open it up for uh, discussion uh, but it's it's a really fascinating right um, it's something that started about four years ago and um, I uh, was doing a book called The Lost Rites and Rituals of Freemasonry and I thought it'd be great to develop this as a series, you know, because there's there's so much there. Um, and I call them lost rights because, you know, there was uh, continuity issues, some some just, you know, uh, ended during the, the period of the French Revolution. Um, and one, one that stuck out really was the right of seven degrees, mainly because it was um, um, developed in England, um, e even though it was French. It, it developed in London in the later 18th century. Um, so that really stuck out. And I had a great opportunity to actually see the minute book and the ritual um, in the United Grand Lodge of England. Um, so it, it was a journey from there really. And uh, the, the original book, The Lost Rites and Rituals of Freemasonry has now become a mere index really of uh, the other uh, the rest of the books that were in the series, uh, Rediscovered Rituals, which was more, more about Richard Carlyle, a Masonic biography of Richard Carlyle and his Manual of Freemasonry, which has a link to this as well, to the right of seven degrees. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a very nice little collection that are developed. And, and like most books, you know, there's no major plan. It just, it, it just kind of goes off on its own natural course. And... Um, uh, it's it's something that uh, I'm quite proud of, really. You know, this this last book, this, this right of seven degrees, it's, it's turned out very well. Uh, publishers done a great job, and um, so I hope you'll be pleased with it as well. So um, right, I shall read an extract, and uh, and then we'll open it up for uh, discussion. So Pierre Lambert de Linto and the right of seven degrees. The right of seven degrees operated in London, England, during the late 18th century. And despite its rather ordinary and unpretentious name, it was a right that presented an array of exotic high degrees and had a direct French influence. Indeed, the right was organized and run by a French immigrant that was meticulously conducted in French. And at least in its early days, the right became connected to the Lodge of, of Perfect Observance, number one. A lodge that operated under the Grand Lodge of England, south of the River Trent. A Grand Lodge formed under the initial guidance of William Preston that came under the overall sway of the Grand Lodge of All England held at York during the years of 1779 to 1789. So there we have quite a confusing um, link between these independent Grand Lodges, uh, the York Grand Lodge and the Grand Lodge of England south of the River Trent. So, um, however, as we shall see, the right was in function before this particular Grand Lodge was constituted and its influence continued long after the Grand Lodge had come to an end. Indeed, according to Masonic historian, W. Wanacott, in his article for AQC in 1928, there may be some things that point to the origin of the Baldwin right. 
And for those of you that are uh, not familiar with the Baldwin Rite, um, that's still going in England to this day in the Bristol area. The Rite of Seven Degrees itself consisted of an elegant collection of high grades that Wanacott suggested originated from the French-based chapter of Claremont, which after an intense rivalry with an order known as the Knights of the East, a compromise was achieved and an order called Emperors of the East and West was born. A compromise that lasted a fair, fair, fair time really, and obviously progressed. With the high standard of degree work and the noble sounding chivalric titles, it managed to secure ascendancy in the Grand Lodge de France in 1767. And the right was brought over to London around this time by French soldier, Pierre Lambert de Linton. The haute grades attracting inquiring Freemasons who held the desire to journey down a more esoteric pathway. A number of French speaking lodges had operated in London previously, and it didn't take long for de Linto to acquire a lodge and create a chapter. In 1779, the Lodge of Perfect Observance, number one, became one of the three London-based lodges that operated under the short-lived spurious Grand Lodge of England, south of the River Trent. Though it was the only lodge to actually work the right of seven degrees via its attached chapter. The Lodge of Perfect Observance was on the whole made up of Frenchmen. Some having been members of some of the aforementioned French speaking lodges that had met in London. Though as the 1780s progressed, there were some notable English names on the membership list, as well as members from other European countries. There were also some well-known aristocratic names associated with the right, such as the Prince of Brunswick and the Prince of Hesse-Cassel. Pierre Lambert de Linto and his right were given a brief mention by John Yarker in his arcane schools. Yarker referring to how Lambert de Linto, who was past master of Lodge St. George of Observance, had for many years been working the seven degree, seven degree system of the French Templary of Clermont, ostensibly as an agent of Prince Charles Edward Stuart. This theory that de Linto was a Jacobite agent had also been put forward by Arthur Edward Waite in his new Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, and has more recently been mentioned by Marsha Keith Fuchard, though no evidence has yet come to light to firmly substantiate these claims. However, as we shall see in part three of the work, and this is the ritual part of the work, there are references throughout the ritual of a strong accuse tradition. The high grades of the rite were indeed practiced for a good few years in London before the Grand Lodge south of the River Trent was formed. So let us now trace its history and examine the three lodges and chapter that are known to have been connected to the right to seven degrees and how they all link together. The first particular lodge is the Lodge of St. George l'Observance, number 148, which was constituted on the 16th of August, 1736, at the Sun on Fish Street Hill. And that's in London. It once had the name of St. George de Unamite and was changed to the name St. George de l'Observance in 1777. 
and Wanacott states how De Linto joined his lodge on the 20th of January, 1779, becoming senior warden before becoming its worshipful master, serving for five successive years. However, as we shall see, the lodge had transitioned into the lodge of perfect observance by the closing months of 1779, and is discussed by Wanacott after the Grand Lodge ended 10 years later. And this lodge transitioned back to the lodge of St. George l'Observance and continued to promote the high degrees for a time. So what we have there is, is lodges uh, changing name, transforming, but basically keeping the core Freemasons at the heart of that particular lodge. So indeed, the lodge of St. George l'Observance could be found operating with a Herodim Royal Chapter of the Grand Lodge and Chapter of England south of the River Trent, under the Charter of Perfect Observance, Perfect Observance number one, as indicated by the final minute entry dated to the 26th of July, 1794. And this also appears to imply that the title of the Grand Lodge of England south of the River Trent was still officially being used by the members even though it had ceased to function in 1789. So the lodge, however, can be seen as officially being erased in 1794, according to Lane's Masonic records. And Alinto died sometime in the, in the late 1790s, possibly in 1798. So by this time, the rite, its original former, had probably ceased working. So the next lodge of interest that is part of this, this group of French lodges that, that uh, conducted the right of seven degrees is the Union Lodge number 270, which according to Wanakot was the original French lodge number 331. And it, and it always gets confusing with these lodges with the numbers and the numbers change and the names changes. And so um, it, it can sound a bit confusing. You know, it's uh, it's even worse when you when you when you're trying to um, research this stuff. You know, so you've got to keep in, in touch with the numbers and the lodge changes and things like that. So this had been constituted on the 29th of January 1765 at Old Bell Savage in Ludgate Hill, and one one cop goes on to say how the warrant was illegally sold to Lito and his friends in 1766 being renamed and renumbered, just to confuse Masonic researches 200 years later even more. So it was this lodge that developed a chapter for the high degree work. When examining the minute, a strong relationship can be seen between the Union Lodge number 270 and the St. George de la Observance Lodge with numerous brethren from St. George being admitted into the high grades of the chapter that was attached to Union Lodge. So basically we've got um, De Linto coming over in 1766, coming over to London from France. He obtains this legal warrant, this, this legal warrant uh, to form this, this lodge, the Union Lodge, attaches a chapter to it so he can specially um, uh, have his, uh, 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 conduct his right of seven degrees and he soon gets in contact with other French lodges, like the St. George Lodge, and the brethren go over 
and uh, initiated into the uh, right that's being conducted over there. So Wanakot observes that the Union Lodge then merged with the Lodge of Sudge, as indicated by Minitentry in May 1778. So they were probably visiting each other's lodges that much that they probably thought, well, let's get together, you know, let's, let's merge both lodges. So although the chapters still work at high degrees, this was now connected to the new lodge, which was the St. George's Lodge. Just to add a little more confusion for Masonic historians later on. So it was this alliance of the Lodge St. George de la Observance and its, and its new chapter that came from the Union Lodge that transitioned into the Lodge of Perfect la Observance the following year. And thus we have a rather fluid and extremely flexible structure of lodges that merge and transmute to suit the needs of the brethren. So now we come to this, this third lodge um, that practiced the right of seven degrees. If I've not confused you so far, then um, th this part certainly will. So the Lodge of Perfect La Observance number one was constituted at the Mitre Tavern in Fleet Street on the 15th of November, 1779, and became the only lodge and chapter under the Grand Lodge south of the River Trent to practice the Rite of Seven Degrees. And there is a minute entry dated the 15th of September, 1779, which describes this transition. And this minute entry came from the, the minutes that were transcribed from the, um, the Minute and Ritual book. And the chapter of Herodom, in union with the Lodge St. George La Observance, makes alliance with the Grand Lodge of England south of the River Trent and receives charter at the hands of Frere Wilson for the Grand Master. Lambert de Linton, this year master, under the title of Perfect Observance number one. So what, what's interesting there as well, just, just going back a little, is that uh, they met at the, uh, the Mitre. And I don't know if anyone here has done any um, history reading about the Enlightenment in London. Uh, the Mitre Tavern was, was quite a centre to the, um, uh, the Enlightenment as such because we have various writers and poets visiting the Mitre. And I do mention this in the book as well. Um, Samuel Johnson, um, Boswell, um, and um, Oliver Goldsmith, um, many, many others that, that were linked to the, uh, the Johnson Circle. Um, so it's a real kind of centre, um, a tavern where these, these um, literary gentlemen would go to, to meet each other and discuss poetry and discuss, um, you know, the news of the day, the philosophy. Uh, so it would have been a fantastic place, really, fantastic little tavern. And um, it was also uh, the centre for uh, some talks that William Preston gave. And um, William Preston, of course, was, was uh, the leader of the, uh, the Grand Lodge south of the River Trent. So going back to the entry, uh, this entry clearly indicates that the Lodge St. George Observance and its associated chapter, which was originally attached to the aforementioned Union Lodge, became the Lodge of Perfect Observance, a brand new lodge under the new Grand Lodge. Indeed, the rite flourished 
within this new context. And according to the minutes, the right was extremely popular, attracting Freemasons from both the moderns and the ancients, as well as Masons from Ireland and from various European countries. And we've got to remind ourselves at this particular time, uh, there was four Grand Lodges operating in England. We had the, the moderns, the ancients, the York Grand Lodge, and of course, this brand new Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge of England, south of the River Trent. So, as we have seen, a fresh examination of the minutes reveals that the lodge, using the old name of St. George L'Observance and working with the Herodon chapter under the Charter of Perfect L'Observance number one, continued well into the 1790s, the last minute entry being 1794. So this last minute entry also signifies that the lodge was still using the original charter of the Perfect L'Observance and was effectively operating not only as an independent lodge, but was keeping the name of the Grand Lodge of England south of the River Trent alive, at least for a few more years after its demise. So we'll now have a look at some of the degrees that were part of the right of seven degrees. Wanakot named the individual seven degrees that were practiced in the chapter that was attached to the Union Lodge, the Lodge of St. George, and the Lodge of Perfect L'Observance. And these have, have some similarities to the, to the right of Baldwin and are presented as thus. The first three degrees are the three craft degrees. The fourth degree is given the name of Elu, which included a selection of unnumbered grades, including architect, prevots et judge, grand architect, companion de la arche, de la, de la arche royale, grand Elu, sublime maitre, and the final grade of perfect ecose. And the fifth degree was called Chevalier de Orient de Occident, and the sixth degree, Chevalier de l'Eagle, Pelican, Rose Croix, de Saint Andre, de Haradum, Triple Croix, or in short, Chevalier Rose Croix. The seventh and final degree is listed as Kadosh. And as we shall see in part three of the work, which is obviously the transcribed ritual, uh, there is a large section of ritual entitled Chevalier, which appears to encompass a number of the Chevalier grades. And Wanakot also noted how the Templar series were combined with the Kadosh. So what's happening there is that um, what Delinto has done is basically compacted uh, most of the Chevalier grades or degrees together and um, as you'll see in the, uh, the ritual section of the book, um, it's basically one long kind of episode, really. Uh, and, it, and it's a fascinating read. You know, if you're really into ritual and if you're into the, um, uh, the transformation of ritual as well, uh, you can see how, how Delinto really uh, worked um, his, his ceremonies and the themes that, that are entwined there, absolutely fascinating. And the way he kind of condensed things as well, because obviously what Delinto's doing, um, he's doing it his way. So he's, he's, he's actually moved on from how it was performed in France and the right progresses and transforms. And it's quite fascinating to see because there you can actually see things moving along and, and transforming and, and transmuting, which is, uh, brilliant really you know it's it's uh, if, if you're into the uh, the evolution of ritual and the evolution of rites 
in, in this period, you can actually see how, how things change and how the language changes as well. So it's a fascinating um, uh, ritual to, to, to examine, really. So um, the, uh, there is another list of degrees uh, given by De Linto in correspondence to the Royal Order of Scotland in 1782, transcribed by G.S. Draffin in his paper for AQC in 1955. And this differs slightly to the degrees that Wanacott put forward and are presented in a different way. And again, this is what I was mentioning before, the progression is uh, fascinating here. I'd just like to say as well, um, uh, Draffen and Wanacott were the uh, original uh, researchers that wrote papers on this, on the right of seven degrees um, for AQC. Uh, Wanacott uh, in 1928 and uh, Draffen, as I just mentioned, in 1955. So it is quite a long time ago that, that this has been fully tackled. And um, those, those two scholars did fantastic papers. And if you've not read them, uh, it's worth checking them. Uh, I believe you can get uh, the free papers downloaded from the AQC website, which is very interesting. Um, so it's, it's definitely worth a look as well. Right, so um, I will now list uh, another variation of, of these seven degrees. Um, and what, what was happening here as well was that the, uh, the grades are being compacted into one degree. So there's a number of grades within one, one degree, which again can be quite confusing. So for the first degree, we have the entered apprentice, the fellow craft and the symbolic master. The second degree, we have what's called a little elected, the inconu and the elective 15. I'm sure my pronunciation is, is tripped up there, but um, you get the picture. The third degree is architect, judge, and grand architect. And the fourth degree is the Royal Arch. And the fifth degree is Knights of the East and Princes of Jerusalem. And the sixth degree is a Herodom degree, a Templar degree, and the Rose Croix degree. And the seventh degree is Kadosh and Templar. <clears throat> so, so you can see how, how the uh, these, these degrees are being interpreted and they're uh, progressing a bit. Um, just a little bit about the Royal Order of Scotland. Um, what Delinto was doing there was obviously getting himself another charter and he was successful at it as well. He, he, he managed to get a charter from the Royal Order of Scotland. Um, so he had, he had two charters. He had one from the Grand Lodge of England south of the River Trent and another charter from the, uh, the Royal Order of Scotland, which was uh, quite uh, canny of him, really. Um, you know, so he's, he's obviously looking at charters. Um, it's, it's, again, the politics of recognition, and he wanted his right to be recognised, and he, and, and he wanted um, his Freemasonry to be taken seriously. You know, so he was, he was looking at different ways there of, of how to survive. He obviously thought as well that uh, the Grand Lodge south of the River Trent might 
implode or might collapse because at the end of the day, there was only three lodges attached to it. So it was only a very small Grand Lodge that was working in London. So certainly the journey presented by the Rite has similarities to the Masonic journey displayed in the Rite of Strict Observance. A seven degree Rite that was also Templar orientated and had Scottish themes. Indeed, similarities can also be observed with the Melissino Rite, especially in the seven degree pathway structure and with the occurrence of the Scottish Master Grade. Both of these rites operated on the continent during the 18th century and reveal the importance of the use of seven degrees in conveying the Masonic story. And they certainly form part of a wider family tree of seven degree rites from that period. The seven degrees of the Linto's rite was structured as having a number of grades compacted into a degree and the seven degrees themselves were also divided up into three sections. The first being the light of the law of Moses, compromising the first five degrees of the right, and the second section being the, the second light upon the law of Christ, which consisted of the sixth degree, and the third and final section being the light upon nature, which contained the seventh and ultimate degree. The first section, the light of the law of Moses, begins with what we recognize as the first three craft degrees, which were classed as one complete degree in the right. Delinto wrote that this degree revealed the signs and symbols, sacred words and passwords. The second degree of the right is listed as revealing the murderers of the master, telling of their punishment and the burial of Hiram. As the Masonic story continues, the third degree as the architects eating a portion of the heart of Hiram as ordered from Solomon himself, something which is reminiscent of symbolically eating the flesh of Christ. But also signifies how the old master lives on within the new. The judges and provost are also elected to prevent future discord during the perfection of the temple. The fourth degree is that of the royal arch where the name of God is discovered which is followed by the fifth degree being Knights of the East. Here we have the reconstruction of the temple after 70 years of captivity, led by Zerubbabel and the deliverance of the Jewish people by Cyrus. The next section entitled Second Light Upon the Law of Christ begins with the sixth degree, which Delinto names as the Royal Order of Herodom in his letter to the Royal Order of Scotland. A degree that dramatically takes us into the Crusades of the Holy Land. And the letter also mentions the voyage of the three columns of faith, hope and charity. Along with research of the word lost by the death of Christ. The descent into the limbs or hell, the delivering of the souls, his resurrection and the word being found again. And Delinto describes the nine crusades. He introduces Geoffrey of Bouillon to the ritual narrative and mentions the antique lodge of Scotland and was established, which was established in the castle of Herodon, which is Delinto states, took on several names according to the revolution and wars. This section, as the title suggests, focuses on Christ's death his resurrection and also how the word was lost and found again 
And in essence, like Hiram in the previous section, the second segment covers the death of Christ, the master. Parallels can certainly be seen here, especially with the word being lost and found, and in the eating of a portion of the heart of Hiram by the new master in the architect's degree, which reminds us of the never ending cycle of life, death and rebirth. The third and final section entitled Light Upon Nature concludes the rite with the final seventh degree. And Delinto mentions seven sections, seven sacred words and seven seals in books of masons. The letter refers to this degree as the Royal Order of Templars Kadosh and, and, and Godfrey of Bouillon is again brought into the ritual narrative as King of Jerusalem. Jacques de Molay is featured and the master's cruel death is firmly blamed on Pope Clement with Delinto unwilling to displease the King of France for his death. In fact, Delinto goes further and states that the popes have never been assisted by the Holy Ghost, which certainly produces an anti-Catholic stance for the right. The Masonic stories continues by saying that upon destruction of the Templar order, in the year 1312 and 1314, the Knights Templar took refuge in Scotland, so the secret knowledge thus survived. This knowledge seemed to have included the knowledge of the salts of Hermes, the separation of four elements, the real, philosophy, the real philosophical stone of mathematics, astrology, and all the sciences. Brother David, just a small in, uh, interruption. Could you turn on the light in the room? Because the recording gets darker and darker. Oh, right, right. <laughs> and it I've might got, be better for reading as well. So, right, I will do. Yeah, the, uh, the, the sun is going down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Ah, there you are. How's that? That's great. <laughs> Much better. Now we see you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my attic study, so um, yeah, I do. I'm, I'm sat right right underneath a skylight, so I'm kind of getting a bit of light. But it was. Uh, I think he's the, destroyed uh, your mood lighting now. The mood lighting. Sorry yeah, it was all it. very mysterious and 18th century enlightenment, but now David's just. There we go. <laughs> was anyway, we'll let you spooky? carry on now. <laughs> <laughs> it was going a bit spooky in, in the attic. Right, so. Um, so basically, that that describes the um, the three sections to this right. So what's happening there? Delinto is not only having a seven degree right, but he's embellishing it with and, and splitting it up into different parts that go deeper. So he's working on different levels, really. You know, he's, he's working on philosophical levels here for each part of of, of the ritual, which which is fascinating. He's giving it a Christian overtone. Um, and and he's he's assessing with this that there are three masters that are ultimately sacrificed within within this journey of, of these seven degrees. First, we have Hiram, um, who's obviously sacrificed in the temple. We have um, Christ, who is sacrificed as well, um, and we have uh, Jacques de Molay. So and and he puts forward that that these three masters are essential to the Masonic story. So um, it's 
it, it's a fascinating right that works at various different levels, philosophical levels, religious levels, um, and it's obviously a journey that, that he's shaped in a way to, to reflect this, and it's uh, fascinating. Plus, it's got this overlying kind of theme of, of uh, the politics of the later 18th century. Blinzo being French, obviously we're on the, uh, the cusp of the, the French Revolution, you know, by, by, by this particular time. So um, there's, there's some uh, political overtones as well, which, which I believe Pierre Mollier has, has uh, written about uh, in, in some of his papers. So, so it'd be good for you to, to check out some of his papers as well. Right. Um, on top of that, you get this fantastic legend of of the um, uh, how the Templars took refuge in uh, Scotland. Um, so the secret knowledge thus survived. Uh, the knowledge seems to have included the knowledge of the salts of Hermes, separation of the four elements, the real philosophy, the real philosophical stone of mathematics, astrology, and all sciences. Um, and there is also a strange mention of the Lodge of Cromwell, which, which fascinated me. I've been trying to find out more about that and, and more about Cromwell's image um, in relation to, um, you know, that, that age of, of revolution, um, which, which is a fascinating image, you know, to be tied into that age. Um, so this completes the Masonic story held within De Linto's right. A story that comprises a mystical journey and tells of the continuation of sacred knowledge, knowledge that is passed down through the ages and is only given to the initiated. Uh, Wanakot did remark that there were variants, and of course, as I mentioned before, you can see how this rite of seven degrees has, has progressed in, in the language used in the minutes and also the way that, that the ritual um, kind of moves along, you know, throughout, throughout the ages. Uh, throughout De Linto's period of time. And um, the, uh, the, there is a slight different variation of the rite that exists in the Grand Lodge of Ireland, in the archives. And uh, just, just to round off, I'll, I'll mention about this, this, this rite that is listed in the, um, the Grand Lodge of Ireland. The first degree is the first, craft, is the first three craft degrees. <clears throat> the second degree is the um, Petit Alu, the Inconu, or the Alu Inconu again, Elo de Queens. The third degree is Architect, uh, Prevot a Judge, and Grand Architect. And the fourth degree is the Royal Arch. And the fifth degree is the Knight of the East, the Grand Commander and the Prince of Jerusalem. And the sixth degree is the Knight of the Eagle, Rose Clark. The seventh degree, and this is one of those that's quite compact again, it's compacting a lot in there. It's the Knights of the East and West, the Knights of the Triple Croix, Knights of Palestine, Templars, Knights of the Sun, the Physical, Philosophical and Moral College of Herodom, otherwise called Kadosh, and otherwise known as the Knight of the Black Eagle. So there's a lot crushed into that, that seventh degree there. Um, so, so there's definitely a change going on. There's, there's um, um, in, in the language as well, the language that's used, 
And I can see this with rituals that, that transplant themselves in other countries. And, and uh, like, for example, the Rite of Seven Degrees also got transplanted in, in Russia. Uh, and that's a whole other story that I believe uh, a Russian uh, Masonic scholar is um, getting involved with, and, and he's written a paper on that as well. So there's some fascinating um, metamorphoses going on here, you know, with these, uh, uh, these rituals. So um, thank you very much for listening to that extract. I hope I've not confused you. Um, because obviously that, that's just taken from part of the book. And um, to put it into context, things would obviously um, smooth over. And obviously there's references. There's, there's so many references there as well. Endnotes, a big section of endnotes in the book. Um, but um, yeah, I'm very, very proud of the book as well. Um, it's uh, about four years in the making. And um, it was um, tra transcribed and translated by uh, a French friend of mine who's a fr French Freemason. Um, the, uh, the, the, the writing of the, uh, the document is terrible. <laughs> and indeed, Wanacott uh, make, makes note of that as well. He, he actually makes note in 1928 in his paper how, how bad the document is. And it's full of splodges, ink, ink splodges, stains. The writing's very, very compact. Loads of crossings out in there. Um, uh, so, so it is quite hard. There's faded ink as well. Um, and I photographed it twice, believe it or not, to, to try and get as close as possible to, you know, so, so we could find these tricky words and, and um, but um, yeah, it's been a fascinating um, piece of, re uh, of research, fascinating journey to go on, um, fascinating insight into the right seven degrees as well into this late 18th century ritual. So uh, thank you very much for uh, listening to that. And I'll turn it over to our hosts for any questions. Wonderful. Thank you very much, David. That was superb to hear. Thank you. So it's time for questions. And with my co-host's permission, I'll start with my own questions. This is, this is always a very interesting part. So David, my first question is speculative, but I, I hope you'll find it intriguing. One of the things I love about this book is the, um, the, there are the pictures of the, the different engravings. I actually saw these engravings in the United Grand Lodge of England and completely mistook what they were many years ago. But now I can see them and I can see your description. And I, I find myself starting to wonder about what they were doing based on what's in this, uh, these different engravings. There, to me, there is an implication that aside from the ritual, there is some form of educational syllabus. Within the engravings, it's clear that they're, they're talking about learning different skills, learning 
about harmonies, learning about drawing lines, learning about maths, learning about other things. The teachings of the, the salt of Hermes or the, the, the natural philosopher's stone, the moral philosopher's stone and the spiritual philosopher's stone. Now, obviously, we know William Preston was a big influence and he most certainly was putting together a syllabus, a question answer style set of lectures. We also know that other rites and degrees of the time had their own educational syllabus. We know that Cagliostro's rites certainly had teachings that you'd learn between rituals. And I can't think of any other explanation as to why, if you look in the rituals, they don't teach the things that are implied in the engravings. So I'm asking you, could there be an educational syllabus we don't know? Are there any hints of this? What studies do you think they were undertaking? Uh, what are your thoughts on this suggestion? Well, it's interesting because um, De Linto referred to his right as a college. And um, to him, it, it was a place of learning. It was a place of um, not just learning the degrees and not just uh, being able to, you know, to verbally repeat them, you know, in, in, in future lodge meetings. But it, it, it was uh, down as a college. Uh, he did refer to it as a, as a, as a college. Mm -hmm. And um, that idea was actually taken over to Ireland as well, uh, to Dublin, where there was uh, a couple of, of uh, Irish Freemasons that uh, went to London to go through these degrees. And then they took them back to, 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 to Dublin to create their own chapters. And um, so, so that's the first occurrence of the Rose Croix and um, the uh, Kadosh and those other degrees in uh, Dublin. And um, um, so they also gave it the name college as well. So, and that, that, that got, and embedded you know within that kind of irish masonic mm. culture you know for uh, a number of decades um go, going into the uh, you know the early 19th century um so there was an element of continuity there as well you know with the with with the right to seven degrees so, so it's as if the linto is or was giving these lectures as well um giving people giving these freemasons instruction and, and, and they, they were going off to different corners of the world. We know, we know that it got transplanted in Russia, um, in Dublin. Um, we have this big, big question as well about the, uh, the right of, of Baldwin, um, which has some startling similarities. Uh, even Wanacott saw that, you know, back in 1928, you know, he saw that there was um, striking similarities there between the two. Um, so it appears that Delinto was teaching as well. So yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. And his engravings as well were, I mean, they're fascinating. The, uh, these engravings, the, the geometrical um, symbolism, um, the almost pseudo-religious symbolism. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. You know, it really gives a like an esoteric window into what he was doing. Um, so yeah, yeah, certainly, definitely, yeah. I mean, I mean, we know that Cagliostro was doing it as well. Um, 
with the uh, the Alacoaire, you know, um, uh, Pasquale was giving teachings, um, and uh, Willemos was 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 going home practicing um, magic, basically, you know. Um, so um, it's fascinating that there was this kind of underlying educational aspect to to these old rites, you know. It's, mm. Yeah, so I very much get the, the feeling that each one of these rites was a starting pistol mm. on your own explorations and on teachings from people there, rather than the whole path in and of themselves. It was, it was to inspire you to get going and to start listening to those who knew, knew a lot. Mm. Okay, so my next question. There's also a very mysterious reference there to um, the Cromwell Lodge. Yeah. Mm. Tell us a little bit about this. This is a, 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 an intriguing idea, and uh, I'm not sure if anyone here has heard about this. Um, obviously, it's in the Genesis of Freemasonry. If you've uh, read that mm. book, you'll, you'll know more about um, the, the Cromwell Lodge. But David, just briefly explain a little bit about the, this legend. Um, well, the, with, with Oliver Cromwell, it was, um, uh, I think it was during the... Um, in the Netherlands, there was a revolution there uh, around that kind of area in the 1740s, I think it was. And they, they were using propaganda, um, which, which featured Oliver Cromwell. So Oliver Cromwell started kind of filtering into this, this propaganda of revolution. Um, so, of course, by the time we get to the Linto, which is... Um, wasn't too far away from that, you know, the 1760s, the 1770s, 1780s. Um, there's this mysterious reference that we have um, in the letter from Delinto to the Royal Order of Scotland about the uh, the Cromwell Lodge. And um, in in Warrington, where where I'm from, um, there's there's so many legends about Oliver Cromwell because because he was here fighting a battle in uh, 1648. Um, actually, in the village where 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 I live, he, he fought a battle there against the Scots. And um, there's all these mysterious legends about Oliver Cromwell, kind of you know having tunnels, secret tunnels. Uh, he's, he stayed in this particular cottage in Warrington. And um, growing up around Warrington, you know, you you kind of hear these legends all the time. Oh, there's, there's tunnels going off, and, you know, things th th things of this nature. So it was always linked to, um, you know, kind of meeting secretly and things like that, and obviously revolution. And, and so I think what, what's happened there is that um, this Cromwell Lodge um, has, has been um, drawn into um, this kind of legendary status that's embedded in the right of seven degrees, you know. So he's, he's kind of drawn, drawn on that. And um, he's, he's seems to be feeding these um feeding off these legends that that can help his right to develop and and the themes building up on the themes you know because i mentioned before how it changes all the time um so so for a frenchman to come over to london um uh, in the 1760s and and to kind of try to add a bit of english stuff in there as well you know um that's that's tainted with the revolution and tainted with this uh um, aspect of rebellion, you know, uh, it's interesting. Okay, now final question. We don't have all of the rituals, do we? 
Is that correct? There's some some we yet to find. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 There's, I mean, the thing with the right to seven degrees as well, it's obviously changed. So, so uh, what we've got um, in that in that document in that manuscript probably dates to around about the 1780s, maybe even even 1790s, early 1790s. It's been changed a lot and 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 been you know messed messed about with. And we find out in 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 the minutes as well that he starts using different phrases as he gets to the later 1780s, early 1790s. He starts um using different different references and um so we know the rituals changed so what this ritual was like in the 1760s um is probably you know it's it's open to speculation it's a bit different than than the ritual that, that's presented in the book um, so so yeah yeah there's, there's there's bits missing there's more there's more to be discovered more oh always more to be discovered oh always more books to be written and that's More good to hear. To be aired. Yeah. So it's time for us to let's move over to questions uh, from guests here. And of course, uh, as normal, we'll alternate between those who are here on video and audio who have their hands up. And then David will list the questions from in the comments, both here um, on Facebook and on, on YouTube. So, Hasu, I think you've been, you've had your hand up. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, and, uh, David. Very interesting. Something that I have never thought about, never read about, or never even contemplated looking for. But there we go. You open another portal into what we should always think is a never-ending story. Um, what I find interesting is that you talk about the first thing I would want to know is was it originally was the original ritual in French, which when it was transferred over here, translated into English. My, my thought is that, you know, they always say lost in translation. How much of it would have been uh, such uh, that you wouldn't have had the exact translation and not the same meaning to the ritual that it may have originally meant to be? Uh, and of course, uh, the other thing would have to follow that would have been that when we moved over to the sort of standardized rituals, they took out the education bit, which again means that you know, we just have ritual, and as Martin mentioned earlier on, that you know, it's sort of created, uh, you just do the ritual and there was no education, so it was peeled away. How do you think that affected the change over into the more of the sort of new structured ritual that we sort of ended up with things like emulation, which became the standard ritual? Thank you for that. Yeah, um, very, very interesting question. Yeah, the um, uh, the translation. Yeah, th things always get lost and muddied a bit, and uh, we had to work on the translation a bit. We uh, it was done by a friend of mine called Thierry Backman. Uh, he was going to join us today. I'm not sure if he's if he's come in, um, but uh, he he did the uh, the bulk of the um, uh, the translation. He he's a French Freemason. Um, who's got uh, experience with with some of the rites that, that are still going on in France, and um, so so he knew the wordings and and the um, you know the Masonic references, um, and we were working on that 
probably together for, ooh, for for a good a good few years. It was all happening in the background while I was doing something else, and and he he was doing other 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 projects. And then um, Pierre Molier had a read of it, um, and uh, he he's a French Masonic scholar, which some of you may may be familiar with. And then um, I got a French speaking. English Freemason uh, called Julian Reese. Don't know if anyone know him very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he he is um, uh, probably one of the best the best ritualists that that I know. Really, he's uh, um, he knows the ritual inside and out. Um, and um, he's a French speaker. Um, he goes after France a lot, so he's used to French culture, and and uh, so so he he had a read of it and was picking out mistakes and and things like that because he, he was coming from an in like an English perspective you yeah. know and, and so um we had quite a few people working on it as well um I, I was reading in the book because you get jaded by it really you get uh you know af after a few years of doing it you get fed up with doing it <laughs> um because you're always nitpicking it and you're always seeing mistakes um and I, I was reading it this morning, actually, and, and I picked up on something. I thought, oh, God, you know, that, that, needs, that, that needs to be changed, you know. So e even today, you know, there's still little bits in there that, that need, need to be addressed. Uh, but that, that's for a second edition. But, Don't do um, this to me, David. <laughs> just, just little things, little tiny things. Well, yeah, uh, to answer your question, yeah, the, it, things do change slightly. So, so that's why we thought we'd we'd keep um in in the actual ritual section which is part three part, part one basically talks about the history part two looks at his engravings and part three is the transcribed section of the minutes and the ritual so what what we decided to do was uh to do one page in the french and one page in english and um, we carried on like that throughout part three. So, so one of one of the tasks really was was to balance the text as well. Mm -hmm. So we had to bear in mind the aesthetic of the presentation, and um, uh, we worked with Martin and uh, one of the designers as well. And I think I think we were, we were on this for a few months, weren't we? We were doing this for a, for a, for a good few months just to get the layout right. So. The presentation was right so um it, it really was a lot of work as well um and um i let a few other people look at it and get their criticisms back as well um and we just did our best with it really we just did the best that we could that we possibly could um but yeah very very pleased with it um as i said i've been reading it and um still still get the odd little um word that doesn't seem right and think, mm, you know could could change that but yeah things do get lost in translation obviously Thing, things do get um changed you know which, which is the best way to say it in english uh which might be something different than than the french you know so um oh, well that, that, this means that i'll have to smash the piggyback and buy the book exactly but, yeah uh, but you i was will not also... be disappointed trust me <laughs> <laughs> it was a book well, this uh, this would have no there's no refunds. <laughs> yeah, it's... but um, the other thing I did also sorry it was 
having gone through all this number of rituals that you have sort of gone over all, all your books, how easy or how difficult would you find now to create a new ritual for Moldaus? A new ritual? Mm. What, from, from the old stuff? Yeah, all the stuff that you've been through. <clears throat> Um, well, I mean, it's been done before, really. Mm. It's, it's all been done before. I mean, um, you've got to remember that these these rites, these rituals, these these high degrees, they've progressed. They've they've all been changed, and um, they've you know been 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 transformed. If if you look at the Scottish rite, for example, um, that really came from these rites. You know, um, there's elements in the right of seven degrees that, that's, that's that's in the Scottish right. Um, most most of these rights have have lent themselves to to the development of other other more modern rights, um, other other degrees. You know, the Rose Choir, um, Knights Templar, Knights of Malta. Um, you know, the uh, I mentioned very early on how, how it connects to Richard Carlyle. And Richard Carlyle's Manual of Freemasonry, which, which was the content of my last book, uh, The Rediscovered Ritual, which is part of this series. Well, with Carlyle, who was an English radical, he wasn't a Freemason. He was um, jailed um, in 1819 for um, saying things that he shouldn't, you know, uh, politically <laughs> and, and religiously. Yeah. And he ended up in jail. And while he was in jail, he, he um, wrote this massive expose, which later became the Manual of Freemasonry. Within those degrees, because uh, he didn't just concentrate on the three degrees, he, he did all these high degrees as well. Mm. And some of those high degrees are degrees that are found in the right of seven degrees, um, which probably faded away in the 17, mid 1790s. Uh, Carlyle's writing in 1825. So, so there, there we've got what, about 30 years gap perhaps, yeah. and, he, and those degrees are still important enough for Carlisle to include them in his Manual of Freemasonry. Yeah. So, so, you know, they're still going. That journey, that Masonic journey um, was, was still going. Yeah. Um, well, I was gonna say, also say uh, that if you ever need to speak to someone who is a researcher and is a, in French and is a professor, Joseph Bellin, who is in a, on the meeting today with us, he's from Brussels. Mm. So he would be, he would be able to, uh, he's done a lot of work and research in a lot of Masonic and uh, uh, non-Masonic matters. Yeah, yeah, so, so, sounds good. Yeah, it could, it could have a look at that for the second edition in a few years time. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you. David, um, would you like to do a few text questions? We have got a couple of hands up, but uh, I think it'd be nice to alternate as we do are aware that uh, David Harrison has got limited time tonight. Sure, I will do that. Uh, we still got hmm. like uh, 30 more minutes, 35 yeah, more yeah, minutes. Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the daughter kind of about over there, but... Yeah, I'm good. Sure, uh, we'll try to focus on the questions to um, to have as much as possible answered. So, um, Charles, your first question: rituals change, uh, but did the purpose uh, theme changed? Uh, it was partially answered, but uh, uh, we don't yeah. know the earlier versions, hmm. right? 
the very early versions, well, I suppose we, we've got to look at the uh, the chapter of Plermo. Um, and uh, there are there are some texts that were published in France um, around the 1760s. Um, Art de Hoyas actually done um, a work on on uh, one of the texts, I believe. Uh, Morris has done some work on uh, the other, um, and they they do include degrees um, that are similar to the ones that were practiced in the Writer's Seven Degrees. So the theme is still there. I think the central themes stay the same, but even those get developed. Um, they get embellished. You know, it's always how how can we do this better? And uh, if, if you think about it as well, the Linto was in London in the 1760s to 1790s, during a time when, when um, you know, we, we were at war, I think we were at war with France, Seven Years' War, was it, I think? Um, and, then, and then the revolution happens, you know? So, so there's always this kind of English, French uh, an antagonism, you know? So the fact that Delinto turns up in London and he practices this writer seven degrees in in, in French um, is is quite special. And the fact that it changes, and the fact that it develops at the very end of the minute, you can see uh, they're being written in English. So they've, they've changed from being written in French to being written in English. So 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 that's interesting. And um, but the central themes always stay the same, even though they get embellished a bit. Like, for example, we mentioned that Delinto is naming certain degrees, you know, um, I'll just refer back to my notes. Um, we have the, let's have a look. The light of the law of Moses um, for the first section, the second light upon the law of Christ and then the light upon nature. So, so we're getting things changed and, and um, renamed and, and um, these biblical figures are uh, part of, of, of these degrees, the themes of these degrees. So yeah, the, I think the central theme stays the same, but things get embellished and developed. Okay, thank you so much. I'll pick the question from Caleb, which is on YouTube. We have 11, 12 viewers following uh, the lecture. There are plenty of um, excellent lectures, thank yous and things like that. So the question is, um, thank you for the presentation as a point of clarity, especially for the profane, how do we commonly define a Masonic rite? What if any are the, what if any are the distinctions between, the, between a rite, a pendant body and order? That's the um, question. Yeah, well, I think I think that's that's getting a bit more um, um, it, within the politics of Freemasonry, really. Um, I mean, obviously, a right um, like the right of seven degrees is. Um, I think Art de Hoyas mentioned it um, uh, more elegantly. A right is like um, a set of stairs going up, and so each step is a degree. And you climb those stairs and you reach to the top, um, you know, so so that's how I would see a right, how these degrees are put together with a theme, with, with, with a story, a Masonic story, different, isn't it? That's, that's more of a whole, <clears throat> um, perhaps a different theme, a different part of the story, you know, so 
the way the way that I see it is, say, for example, with Carlisle. Carlisle, his manual of Freemasonry wasn't a collection of degrees that came under a right. It was a collection of degrees. And, and some of those were already being taken out to become orders at, at, at that, that particular time. So, so what is a, is a progression, a natural progression, transformation, where some of these rights, the degrees in the rights are cherry picked. So we'll have that one, that one sounds good, we'll take that, and then they get taken and they get developed and that becomes part of, say, for example, the Knights Templar Order or, you know, uh, something like that, you know, and, and um, okay. the Rose Quart, you know, which, which, which is effectively in England, it's, um, you know, part of um, a variation of, of the Scottish right, you know, the, uh, the Northern jurisdiction where, where that was taken over and messed about with. And um, so you can see how, how things have changed, developed, transformed, progressed. And it's all part of that progression. And that's what makes this very interesting. Um, you know, this ritual development and how, uh, especially high grades, you know, how, how they've kind of gone in very different directions and, and cherry pick from certain rights. And this is where we get um, an element of continuity, really. Um, you know, it's not um, an evolutionary dead end for Delinto's right. Um, parts have been cherry picked and taken elsewhere. Okay, answer is taken. Let's uh, let's take another question from YouTube, and uh, then I will return the floor to Brother Martin. The question comes from Brother Kingston Patrick. Um, if this pre-existed the ancient and accepted Scottish rite, why would Albert Pike have needed to rehearse it? Re rehash, rehash, it. rehash it, yes. Re a rehash. <laughs> rehash, yeah. Yeah. Um, a rehash. Well, you've 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 got to think of of, of these rites as um, cultures, in a way, and um, certain uh, rites get get taken to other places or get adopted by other leaders, by other Masonic leaders. Because because let's face it, these these leaders like. Um, Pierre Lambert de Linto, he, he was a very um, astute ritualist and he was in control of the right of seven degrees. It was his baby, really. Um, and you can tell that from, from the minutes. His presence is, is all over it. His handwriting is there. His signatures are lavish. He, he, he was doing these, designing these engravings. He was the central figure of this right. It was his right. So this was his little thing, his his little culture, and then and then he gets someone, um, someone else who who basically takes a right and then takes that over somewhere else to another country, and that develops around his 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 personality, and he adds different things. He he cherry picks from other sources and 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 puts them together. Um, so this this is how it how it develops really. Now, what, when we get to the 18, when, when was it the 1860s, the 1870s, when Pike was um, involved in, and uh, basically nurturing his own um, culture, if you like, his own, his own Masonic culture within the Scottish Rite. I mean, if you look at Pike as an individual, very high, high intellectual um, and American, 
as well. So he's, he's, he's coming from it from a different angle and obviously a different culture. So he's, he's transforming his own um, ideas into the right, you know. So um, uh, I wouldn't really call it rehashing, but I'd, I'd call it readdressing for, for a different time period and obviously an emerging culture as well. You know, so so this is how ritual changes. You know, you kind of adapt it to, to your own time, to, to your own place and time. And obviously, these Masonic characters, these strong, um, charismatic, intellectual Masonic characters that are always there in Freemasonry, because Freemasonry, when we talk about male Freemasonry, obviously, um, historically, these are alpha males. You know, these these are guys that are not only top of their own careers, um, but they're, they're the top in Freemasonry as well. You know, they're, their own particular lodge, their own particular jurisdiction. So they have a stamp on, on their, their, their vision. You know, they, they can implant their vision into that, that, that framework. So, so yeah, I wouldn't call it rehashing. I'd, I'd call it readdressing perhaps for the period that, that these people are operating in. Thank you. Back to you, Brother Martin. Thank you. Um, one small uh, thing I'd like to mention that might be quite interesting uh, for those present that I've observed. One of the reasons rituals tend to get a little bit changed over the, the whole history of masonry is because Back in the times that uh, uh, this rite appeared, one of the, the chief practices uh, for a, a mason uh, would be to puzzle out mysteries. And that idea of puzzling out mysteries wasn't just in Freemasonry. There were whole there were pictures you could get to contemplate on, emblems which were deliberately obscure. There were tales which had many levels to them. Puzzling things out was seen as a way of contemplating things. So rituals that are deliberately written to be a bit peculiar and mysterious and with lots of loose ends. By the time the Victorian brothers and everyone going since get to them, they're thinking, oh, there's something wrong here. They, and they want to want to make them more clear and complete. I want to make them historically correct rather than this analogous. And they want every, they want an explanation that everyone can understand, and they're concerned about people being puzzled. So they subtly start to make a, a, a puzzle something easy to understand. Uh, if, so that makes sense. So that's one reason you do see slight changes starting to, to happen, and and different ways of viewing things that slowly bring things into. And more congruence. So anyway, enough for me. Um, Philip, you've been waiting patiently with your hand in the air, your virtual hand in the air. Uh, do let us know your question. Thank you, Martin, uh, and thank you, David, for your presentation. Uh, I've also, uh, I, I must say that I've also enjoyed your your other, uh, other book uh, on the lost rights. Very interesting. Yeah, now, uh, to my question, uh, you've mentioned that uh, the Rose Crow 
was part of the seven rights and that um, it uh, later on developed into the ancient and accepted Scottish right, what we now uh, know the, the 18 degree right. And what I see nowadays is that when, when you mentioned in, in the Masonic environment, uh, Rosicrucians, everybody mm -hmm. says, oh yes, the 18 degree. But I have a book from Andres Casart, it's written in Spanish. Uh, which is called Manual of, of Masonry, where he specifically says about the 18th degree that it has nothing to do with the early 17th century uh, movement of the of the Rosicrucians. And when we look from the historical point of view, uh, 18th century, we, we had uh, the Order of Gold and Rosy Cross. So my question to you is, uh, do you know uh, whether there have been any kind of an, a connection between the French and their Rose Croix? and the germans and their uh, alchemical uh, you know uh, inventions and investigations under the golden rosy cross and why do we see this kind of confusion between red cross being rose croix on one side and rosicrucians on the other thank you thank you yeah yeah uh, it's um that that is a good question as they say when they don't know the the full answer uh, but it, it's um, the way the way that I that I interpret it is that uh, the uh, degree, the Masonic degree of of of, of Rose Quart is um, very very different really um, in regards to the so-called Rosicrucians of the 1600s and and, and 1700s. But it still retains some of those themes. The the themes are still there, kind of running running through it really um it's just been changed and adapted for um uh, masonic to fit part of the masonic story in there you know so it's um it's a very strange and mystical degree um that emerged in the 18th century um so there's no connection between that and the um the rosicrucian movement if you like um but however it seems to have adopted some of those themes, some of those uh, alchemical themes and the themes of resurrection. Um, so uh, it's interesting how how these Freemasons uh, again cherry picked their, their, their source material uh, to to construct these degrees, which were basically sequels, you know, to the to the story. So so it still retains certain themes. Um, but they've obviously adapted it and uh, put it into this sequence of events. You know, it's a bit like um, I think when I was given a talk here ooh, about a year ago, maybe um, I, th I think it was on 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 the Lost Rights, and uh, someone put it this way: it's like Star Wars films. You know, so so you get these these three films that came out from 1977 to 1983, which which were basically the um, the middle films. And then, and then you didn't get the prequels till till the end of the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, and now we have the sequels. So, so the prequels should have gone before it, and the sequels after it. So it's a bit like that, really. It's it's, it's like constructing uh, a series of degrees, and to put them in some kind of meaning, some some meaningful sequence. And um, each each degree is obviously different and has a different theme. Uh, but links into the degrees, uh, and the rose quart seems to have been implanted um, as really an essential part of of this this degree story. Um, 
and they called it the Rose Croix, and it, and it has all these this vivid, beautiful symbolism, you know, the rose and the meaning of the rose and, and how that, um, you know, signifies Christ and, and uh, the resurrection and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And then if, if we look at Carlyle, going back to the Manual of Freemasonry, Carlyle, Richard Carlyle, he presents two versions of that, which is quite, quite nice, really, you know. Um, so already in the, the 1820s, there's, there's different versions of that. So again, it depends who, who is behind these, these, uh, the, these rites and rituals and degrees, who, who, who is in control, where, where, where they're based, you know, which country they're based in. But generally there's, there's no connection, you know, between the Rosicrucians of, 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 of the 1600s. It's just that elements of, of the stories have been moved along and embedded in, into that particular degree. That's the way that I see it. May I just once again add <coughs> the observations of David there? Something else interesting to do with our degrees and to do with um, human interaction in general. A mistaken impression, which is one which meets with approval and is inspiring, often makes it so. When the Greeks interacted with the Egyptian priests, they used to call them megos, uh, magicians. And the Egyptian priests said, no, 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 we're not magicians, we're priests. But they, and they held out saying that for 200 years until eventually they started calling themselves megos. When the hippie Westerners started learning yoga from India, Eventually, they changed what the teachers were teaching by being very excited about very new age ideas, ideas that weren't originally in the Veda or the Vedas or the teachings. And the same with the Rose Choir degree and the Rosicrucians, the similarity of the names and the excitement that they could be connected seems to have slowly connected them. Uh, I think that might be. Uh, one of the, uh, the the things that's happened. Okay, um, so yes, moving is that your how, how to pronounce your name? Let me know. Uh, you, you've been waiting for a while. Let's, well, let's thank you very that. much, Martin. Well, thank you, Brother David, for your very interesting and clear lecture. I became very interested in reading your book and knowing all those amazing degrees. Well, as you said, uh, it was not an original idea at the time to condensate or organize all Masonic knowledge in seven degrees. There are many continental examples and for example in france you can find the system of mother scottish mother lodge of marseille social because marseille that had for a free free blue degrees and four high degrees or even french right <clears throat> that has also free free craft degrees and four That's high it. degrees what I find very interesting in this system is that those French systems at that time, the last degree was always the Rose Croix because it marked the passage 
from the old law to the new law by the discovery of faith, hope, and charity. At that time in France, French Rose Croix was not an alchemical degree, it was a Christian degree. The alchemical interpretations were introduced in the beginning of the 19th century. And uh, this system includes also the Templar legend, and it goes much further. And that's really very interesting. As you said, uh, the idea to compress the degrees, to compress, for example, the two degrees, we can find it also in the French right. All the steps of the French right are synthetic degrees that make the synthesis of a lot of degrees from the same family. And as I understood from what you presented, we can find in this system exactly the same uh, kind of construction. No, it's not an, an analytical system as the right of perfection or uh, that uh, serves as source from ancient and accepted Scottish right, but it's a more similar construction to French right. So, I think that it would be very interesting as further investigation. I don't know if you started already this, this uh, path to, come, to try to discover in, from the de French degrees, which were the sources of these synthetic degrees. And a very interesting comparison could be to compare uh, these synthetic degrees uh, with the arch of the 80, 81 degrees that uh, comprise the French right and that are whose manuscripts are in BNF. So mm. I think that would be a very interesting uh, study to do. What I wanted to ask you was two, two questions. First, those lodges that you told, uh, witchcraft degrees practice. They practice the, the normal modern craft degrees from, from uh, the Premier Grand Lodge, or they have a particular craft degrees. And the other thing I, want, I wanted to ask you is that that Union Lodge that you referred is the same lodge that in uh, 1747, I think, worked in Devil's Tavern and had a Scotch Master's Lodge aggregated. And it, it's in that lodge that we, we can find the first traces of that degree of Scotch Masters. Is it the same lodge that uh, after merge with St. George? Right, well, th thank you for that. Yeah, the, um, just just before I answer the questions, the, um, or attempt to, um, yeah, the French right, is uh, something that uh, has fascinated me with this because um, um, going back to my friend in France, Thierry Backman, he's um, introduced me to uh, various different uh, versions of, of, of the rite and uh, um, different symbolisms that's, that's going on there. Um, there. There is a, in the book, um, there's one of the, uh, uh, yes. tracing boards, the fellow craft tracing boards there, uh, the seven steps going up there, it's beautiful. So I thought, well, that, that's going in there. Um, that, that, that was from Theory Batman. Um, and in the appendices, I, I have made an effort to actually uh, put down at least some of the uh, seven degree rights. 
um, which I find fascinating because I think it was Gould that tried to link up these um, in some kind of family tree, which, which was interesting. He attempted to do that. That was obviously back in the, the later 19th century. Um, but uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll list a few of the, the seven degree rights and in appendices and, and give a, a petty history there, you know, behind them and, and how, how the, the, there may be a connection. Uh, and in one of those, I put the traditional French right of 1818, um, which does indeed end with the Rose Croix. So yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating difference really. Um, because obviously with Pierre Lambert de Linto, he's, he's, he's using Kadosh you know, um, the very end, you know, and, and this is his, his, his pride and joy, you know, and he, he mentions that in the minutes as well, you know, how, how important that degree is. And he is the only one, he says, that, that is master of this, you know, so um, um, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the differences. Um, but yeah, the, the Union Lodge, going back to the Union Lodge, um, this was uh, something that I was looking into, actually, because um, it was uh, in, it was originally the French Lodge number 331, um, and it was constituted on the 29th of January, 1765. So um, <clears throat> this, this is when, oh, my daughter's shouting in the background now, she's, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear her. Um, but yeah, this, this is when the lodge was obviously constituted. Um, and um, it was at the old Bell Savage in Ludgate Hill. So I believe that the Union Lodge that you refer to was a different lodge that was actually doing that, 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 that Scots Master's degree. I have got some information on that um, in my notes. Um, I, I was going to put some of that in there, but then I thought well, it might be too confusing because uh, obviously when you get lodges that are named the same, you know, or, or similar, and there's different numbers, it, it can kind of muddy the water a bit. So I thought, well, 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 that's a separate story really, even though it does cross over, you know. Um, but this particular Union Lodge uh, was constituted in uh, 1765. Um, and then it was um, illegally sold to uh, Delinto and his friends a year later. So, and, and, and then it was renamed and renumbered. So um, yeah, when you, when you start into lodges like that, it can be quite confusing. Uh, you know, when you get all these different numbers and, and the names change. But yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a story there definitely, you know, with that, with that particular union lodge, uh, which is very interesting because I think that was the 1740s, wasn't it? It was meeting in the Devil's Tavern. Yes, I think 1737. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the, the time that we find the traces from that Scots master's degree mm -hmm. that was uh, tra uh, traveled to mm -hmm. Berlin and then after to France and yeah. was at the, uh, the origin of all the high degrees that of Lecosism. That's right. Oh. Very, very interesting story. Yeah, because yes, that, yes, that, yes. That was the, the that was the it. first high degree of everything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Even for the Royal Arch, in a way, because the Royal Arch. I think been... Royal Arch is a descendant of that Scotch master's degree. Yeah. The legend yeah. is very yeah. similar. Yeah, and again, it's an example of how um, a degree was transplanted elsewhere. 
and it developed yes. there as a different culture in a different it culture was brought it was brought to berlin by a, a brother an italian brother that was a painter mm. called uh, fabris and uh, that that scots masters lodge of berlin worked in in in, uh, in a french language and had french members and mm. after that that scots masters degree went to france mm. and we find in 70s traces of the Scott Masters in Paris, for example. Yeah, yeah. So everything came from that Scott Masters degree. That's right. Yeah. And it's and it's interesting as well how it progressed so so quickly when it was transplanted over there. Because yes. by, by the time we get to the 1740s, it's it's yes. really took a, a hold and because it, it was a, a very rich degree from what we know today from its legend and its ritual. Mm. Everything mm passes uh, from the the story of the discovery of the right name of god yeah. in a crypt under the ruins of Solomon's temple by scots crusades nice yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was it was a really very interesting degree and yeah of course royal arch and all those scott masters the french scots masters degrees they have origin in this in this Scott master in this English Scott master's degree mm. yeah it's yeah it's, it's a great it's a great development I know I know there's a couple of people working on 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 that development now there's um... yes uh, Pierre Mollier has an interesting uh, an interesting uh, paper about that yeah if you want I can send you oh it'd be great yeah fantastic yeah yeah excellent thank you very much thanks thanks for the question thank you Okay, um, do we have enough time for another question or two, David? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all gone quiet, so uh, things things are good, I think. Um, David, um, would you like to do some from the comments now, or should I continue with those who are holding their hands? Let's take the, the last hand, and then we will do whatever questions we will be able to do from the chat. Wonderful. Mm. That, that was what I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> so I've got um, J.V. Bevelin. Is that, am I saying everything correct there? My dear friend, you need to take yourself off mute. Um, uh, my name is uh, Joseph van Belling and I'm from Belgium. I'm the one uh, as we spoke about. Uh, ah, wonderful. <laughs> a, a, so, an uh, educated question coming here. <laughs> uh, thank you for uh, this very interesting conference. And I have uh, one question. Is there a link between the Lato and the circle and the, the lodge of the Philalette in this with the Savalette de Lange? The um the right of Philalethists? Yes, is in yes and the Savalette de Lange. Yeah. The convention yeah. of the Philalethists in <clears throat> that's right. I think that was um was that late uh 1770s or uh, 1787 yeah. or so. Yeah. Um, I not come across any 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 direct link. Obviously, by that time, Pierre Lambert de Linto was was um, very firmly based in London. It had been in London, uh, you know, since 1766, um, and um, we're basically working on the bare bones of things, really. Uh, the, not that much is known about about Delinto in in uh, France. We know that he was um, 
made a mason in the 1740s, um, that he was based in Normandy at some point, hence the Delinto part of his name, because um, we know that previous um, um, engravings of uh, Delinto, um, he's, he's basically referred to as um, P. P. Lambert, so or Philippe Lambert, uh, sorry, Pierre, Pierre, Pierre Lambert. So, so um, yeah, we we don't really know that much about his time in France, apart from the fact that he was a soldier as well. Um, so he's a military man, and so I don't think there is, there is a connection because by that time, he was firmly based in 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 London and and had his own circle, as well. You know, he had his own circle of followers really. Um, so. Um, to answer the question, I don't think so, really. But you never know; something might come up where he he may still be in contact with 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 people in Paris. Um, he, was, he was not in contact with uh, Masons in Paris or France in general. Not not that I know of. There, there was um, a group of uh, French immigrants, shall we say, that that were based in London, um, and. The ones that were Masons were obviously quite quite close to him. Uh, he 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 did have a, a section of followers, shall we say, um, especially in the early days, um, that that were French, um, and and they'd obviously moved moved to London, but um, there doesn't seem to be any any connection really that that I've I've, I've found that he's he's still in touch with with Freemasons in in uh, Paris. Um, so, um, but obviously he, he, he was in touch with people around Europe because there were people from Germany, um, from Russia coming into London and they were, they were being um, initiated into his right, shall we say. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were taking the degrees of his right. So he, he was certainly well, well known. And uh, there, there were a lot of military people coming over and also um, aristocracy, you know, from, from, from various different locations in Europe. So he was obviously in touch with people and he was well known. So people were coming to him to be um, uh, initiated, to, to, to take these, these higher degrees that, that, that were in his right, you know. So he was obviously in, in touch with, with, with people by letter. Um, not much has survived though, you know, which is a shame. Sure. Okay, David. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll uh, try to ask some questions. We don't really, we are almost uh, out of time, but uh, uh, maybe one or two questions that we can answer. And those that will be um, will be unanswered, I'll uh, reserve the chat and probably we might be able to organize in our Q&A session, maybe later some sometime in future with Brother David because those seem to be very interesting questions and without lecture, just Q&A session could be a good idea to follow up uh, this discussion, if that's okay with you, Brother David. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could okay. also look at other, other parts of the book as well, you know, the other sure. sections that might give light on the... 
Excellent, excellent. So we don't want to disappoint your daughter. So uh, maybe one or two very <laughs> short questions right now, and then we'll leave. We'll let you uh, let you go, uh, so Dad can play with the daughters. Um, one question that I have is regarding the Russians that you mentioned several times. Yelag, and I read about that in uh, AQC report that Yelagin and uh, Lukin that were uh, both uh, initiated in the in this right. And right. they were Yelagin. Uh, Yelagin has been given the uh, position of deputy grandmaster or something like that, and mm -hmm. they then went to Russia. Uh, yep. From Russian sources or books that I read, Yelagin has been a, like a, a person in Russian Freemasonry, the mm. very mm. phenomenal right. guy. Yeah. So my question was, uh, did he have did he have any other? Uh, uh, kind of uh, position uh, entitled comfort to him from uh, from any Grand Lodge or any Grand Lodge of uh, then uh, acting existing in England, or was it the only position, the Deputy Grandmaster, which has been conferred to him or given to him by uh, Peter? Mm. Because in yeah. in England in, in Russia, Yelagin was uh, was presenting himself as the deputy grandmaster of uh, that has been given to him in England, but it mm -hmm. doesn't give these details. What this seems to be different Englands. Let me put it that way. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, in England yeah. those days. <clears throat> so, yeah, yeah. What's your point on that? If you have uh, researched that part. Yeah. Well, I do, I do mention that in the book. Um, I was actually going to put a print of of him in the book, but um, I couldn't get permission <laughs> to use it. Uh, the the only the only prints I had was like a small little digital thing and and um, uh, I did find a, a a larger one of him and and I, I couldn't get permission to actually get it in the book um, but uh, but yeah he was a central figure really he, he came over um, and to Delinto uh, obviously he put him through the right the the high degrees and then went off. With this uh, deputation, really, to to start the right in Russia, um, which is a completely different story, um, a separate story, um, and that that survived for uh, a few years, and it changed its name. I can't remember the name now that that he actually used. Um, I do mention it in the book, I think, but he he wasn't called the Right of Seven Degrees. He actually changed it. Um, so again, we can see how things were, were transforming, think, things were changing. So he plucked the right, implanted it in his native Russia, mm -hmm. completely adapted it and changed it, and it transformed. Um, and, it, and it lasted a few years, I believe. It, it lasted, you know, quite a, quite a few years, attracted quite a few um, uh, high members of society, shall we say, in Russia. You know, yes. so again, it was quite, quite a famous part of Russian Masonic history and directly linked to to Delinto really um, so really you know Delinto Pierre Lambert Delinto wasn't just a guy um, you know a maverick you know he wasn't just a guy that said right I'm going to do my own right let's get people involved let's make a bit of money he really believed in his style of Freemasonry uh, he really believed in his in his right of seven degrees uh, passionately and his ritual performance, shall we say, was was so worldwide, 
known, you know, he was, he was quite famous in the Masonic world. And there was all these different people coming to him, you know, from Russia, from Germany, France, from um, Sweden, I think it was as well, from Ireland, uh, Scotland, you know, so it was quite a, a central figure and very well respected. And as Martin said, you know, it, it was like a college. He actually named it a college. There was this, uh, it wasn't just the ritual, go and learn that, come back and do it. You know, there was a lot tied in with it. There was education, there was uh, philosophical things. Um, you know, there was other, um, many different levels to it as well, which is absolutely fascinating. And of course, when that got implanted in Russia, it, it went in a different direction, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, thank, thank you. Uh, last question. And uh, as we agreed, maybe in coming uh, days or weeks, we can find a slot when uh, we will do the Q&A session only. And there are plenty of questions to answer, very interesting ones. The last question, while reading through the uh, person, uh, um, Pierre um, de Lintot, uh, from uh, AQC report, uh, there was this notion there that uh, he seems to be to have brought the engravings from France, not really mm. producing them in England, but bringing in from France. And yet, his I forgot the surname. Um, his uh, his Frenchman, his friend who stayed with him in the room, and every time they needed to get or got the order from someone. He would re uh, uh, kind of reshape this engraving for certain uh, customer. So it mm. it seems that only several in several cases, uh, Peter himself was the author of uh, I don't know maybe he was the author in France of those engravings he brought with him. But this is the notion that is being kind of produced in the AQC that uh, as, uh, that, that that was the feeling that that was left. So and. The second uh, kind of um, uh, issue, most of them were military guys. Mm. They were not mm. artists at all. They were military guys. Uh, and even the mention of the higher degree uh, or higher, higher ranking guys, you see the field generals, lieutenants, and I mean, uh, quite, a, quite an elite of uh, French military present as a hierarchy of the order of the right of seven degrees. So my, combining these two, what was the context of these uh, French guys living in, the, in, uh, in, in London, in the heart of London? And it wasn't kind of suburbs of the London that was in Soho, it was in the, right in the middle of it. Was, mm -hmm. Did they have any political agenda or I wouldn't say spy, but also some influence uh, that they wanted to kind of uh, have on the events in London. You remember, and the notion also of the author of is that <clears throat> this was the right of certain uh, rights that then turned um, into grand, uh, was became part of grand orient of France that led to revolution. That was the sentence. So it's, it's kind of this notion of revolution is also there which happened a bit later, but still uh, the, it was the context seems like that. So was there any political agenda in reality? Um, I don't think there was any political agenda. No, there was um, um, there was always these legends attached to Belinto about him being a Jacobite spy. Um, and that gets picked up on 
in the 19th century by John Yarker, Arthur Edward Waite, and more recently, I think it's Martha Souchard um, who, who, who writes about that. Um, well, there was no um, connection at all, apart from the use of the Scottish theme, you know, in, in, in the, the right, you know, where, where the Knights Templar go to Scotland and the Mountain of Herodim and uh, the Royal Order of Scotland, the, the application for the, uh, for the patent, of course. Um, there, there is a quote, which I'd like to read you, if I can quickly find it, um, where Delinto in the minutes actually um, <clears throat> addresses this problem. Uh, he actually says, no, no, I'm not a Jacobite and, and I don't have allegiance to Bonnie Prince Charlie. I, I have allegiance to um, the, uh, the King of England um, or the Hanoverians at least. I'm trying to find it. It is in here somewhere. Um, and it is a fantastic quote. And I don't know where it is. <laughs> um, it's We've here, got so to it. get the book to read it. So yeah, that's also yeah, a good answer. Book to read it. But he does actually say that. And it's uh, a fantastic quote. Um, but he, he denies um, any involvement with Bonnie Prince Charlie with the uh, pretender, as he, as he, as he calls them. Uh, oh, I found it, I found it, here we go. Oh no, I've lost it again, the page turned over. Um, right, here we go. Uh, the year of our Lord on the 19th of June, 1774, high noon, the wise and sovereign chapter of the Knights of the Rose Clark Eagle assembled, deliberated to recognize his Royal Highness, Henry Frederick, Duke of Cumberland initiated on February the 9th, 1774. So the fact that the Duke of Cumberland had been initiated into Freemasonry, they're acknowledging that and they're discussing that. The Grand Master, Grand Curator, Guardian of the Pact and Sacred Vow of Christians, in place of Charles Edward Stuart, for the reasons that have been alleged in this chapter, and particularly that we will not recognize in this chapter, no constitution in the name of the said Charles Edward. In the three kingdoms of Great Britain, there's contrary to our deliberation and to the vows that we make and we, and we will make all our life for the prosperity of the House of Brunswick, that it will be presented in the said Duke of Cumberland at the most convenient time and at each chapter, he will be hailed as such. Glory to God, to his highness, Henry Frederick, Duke of, Duke of Cumberland, to have Knights of the Eagle, Rosequire, it was deliberated the said day and year as below by 70 in number, 70 people, 70 Masons. Um, so there you have it. Um, he's basically saying, oh no, we're not, we're not um, Jacobites. We're not, we're not into the Bonnie Prince, you know. Oh no, we're Duke of Cumberland, you know. So he's actually saying it there in the lodge and that's got put in the minutes. So in black and white, so, um, I think um, he's, he's, ma he's making a point there that no, no, we're not, we're not Jacobites. We, we may be doing rituals and degrees that, that um, echo this, this Scottish legend, but we're not for the Bonnie Prince. And this is in 1774. So this is almost 20 years since the, um, you know, the Battle of Culloden. Um, over, uh, nearly 30 years. Isn't it? Um, so, um, you know, it's um, interesting that, that he, he makes that point, 
1774. So um, okay, th there you have it. So there was, so so there was certainly no political agenda there in regards to Jacobites, and um, <clears throat> even though he actually mentions as well in, in his letter to the Royal Order of Scotland that he doesn't hold the King of France responsible for Jacques de Molay's death, um, he blames the Pope, you know, um, but. He seems to hold the, the, the king in, in, in high regard, the king of France. Um, but I don't think there was any, um, certainly there was no record of anyway, any, any kind of um, uh, secret activity going on by, by Pierre Lambert de Linso. You know, he was, he, was, he, he was too engrossed in his Freemasonry, I think. He was, he, was, he was too engrossed in his ritual, even though that has a political level in a way, you know, that there, there, there is political themes going on there. Um, I, I, I think that he was um, obviously too engrossed, you know, in his Freemasonry and his, and his, and his followers, really. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Brother Martin. You may want to do the closing part, then I will do my part and uh, let's uh, give some freedom to Brother David, otherwise, Girls will get disappointed. Thank you very much to the Davids, both uh, the, um, for the, uh, the the talk and for helping arrange hosts this. The right of seven degrees is a inspiration. It shows how Freemasonry and its kindred arts can be progressive if you choose to ensure it is so, if you keep studying and keep moving forwards. If you read the description of the engravings and uh, the different uh, descriptions of the, the ritual and even the minute books, you get that sense of striving to be the best you you possibly can be and to understand things as clearly as possible. Let's take these lessons from the past and apply them to the present. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been given all the links for those who want to get the signed version of the book. You have uh, Brad David's uh, author's uh, uh, emails and uh, Facebook page link, so you can get directly in contact with him. Otherwise, uh, Louis Masonic uh, has already available the book available uh, for purchase uh, on his on its site. Uh, for those who've been watching it on YouTube, I will uh, remind everyone that today we had uh, Legere Aude, which is there to read number five, and the topic of the discussion was the right of seven degrees. The book recently released uh, by brother Dr. David Harrison. Thanks for joining, and this concludes our lecture. And uh, goodbye, and Nahuamdis, that's goodbye in my native Georgian. Today is 7th of November, 2021. Thank you.